Okay. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Good. A uh, couple uh, points of housekeeping. Uh, I heard uh, some old episodes. Um, so without context, but uh, just for posterity, uh, it's uh, Mary Louise Parker, uh, Judy Davis, and Stardust Memories. And it's now you may proceed. Prosecute, not persecute. Yeah, both I'm going to make good. mistakes like that both all the good. time. And I should be judged for it. Uh, so I'm trying to get better. Judge, prosecution. Let's see what you did there. I didn't do that there. Two things that have been on my mind. Yeah. The first was a story we saw on the BBC about a new phenomenon called, I guess... Planking. Charge rage, where people become enraged because they can't find a charging station for their electric vehicle. An opladpunt, opladenpunt. Yes. I already experienced a little bit of this rage when I tried to rent an electric cargo van. This was a couple of years ago. And the range on the van was really low. I was starting to run out of juice. And I would go into garage after garage to try and charge it. And there were no charging stations. And so the only thing that was left was the slow charge. And I had to charge it during like a 90-minute meeting. And when I came back, it just barely had enough new charge in it to get it back to the rental agency. Not working. And the news clip that we saw yesterday about charge rage was this growing problem where the infrastructure cannot meet the number of EVs on the road. Now, we predicted a while ago that this was going to happen. You know, it's that same theme. Like anybody can take a reservation. It's all about execution. We need to get electric vehicles on the road. Okay. Politicians, 90% of all politicians' statements in public start with, we must, we need to, what we have to do is, yes, we have to do all of that. But without the infrastructure, none of it means anything. And now it's already starting to happen. Which is another reason why I'm still skeptical about EVs being the solution to removing fossil fuel CO2 output from our transportation reality. Dum, dum, dum. I mean, these are uh, complicated uh, issues. Um, In theory, electric vehicles, yeah, nice idea. Uh, It's certainly good for some applications and, and nothing new. You know, we've had... Uh, electric vehicles <laughs> since motor vehicles um, but obviously uh, you know battery technologies do improve uh, over time and have consistently in a way that you know efficiencies in internal combustion engines that's a, its own thing uh, but there is definitely uh, a degree to which I think a lot of policy choices uh, disregard you know, a, a true big picture, uh, complete analysis. Um, the practical realities of how uh, batteries are manufactured nowadays and, you know, what materials are actually going into those batteries and uh, what sorts of uh, capacity we would have uh, if we, you know, tried to switch fully to electric vehicles, which some countries are under um, self-imposed <laughs> mandates about when they're, entire 
uh, you know, fleet needs to change. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's complicated. Leave it in the ground. Leave what in the ground? Petroleum, oil, or cobalt? Well, and also, it's easy enough to pat oneself uh, on one's back. It's, oh, you know, I'm doing my part. You know, I'm driving my electric car or whatever. But, I mean, there's a lot of very um, self-satisfied people in the Netherlands, for example. But the grid itself (laughs) is wholly unsustainable. So, you know, even setting aside the break-even point um, at, you know, how long the electric vehicle has to be driven. Um, and uh, if you look instead just purely at its, you know, day-to-day use, well, if you're recharging from an unsustainable grid and, you know, we're actually buying <laughs> more Russian natural gas, for example, than we did a couple years ago, um, all, all this will change as well. But, you know, the, there's there's always a big picture uh, there's always a bigger picture uh, to look at. I, I think it's fair to say. We need to get Claire in to talk yeah, about unsustainable this. grid. What exactly is the point of an electric vehicle? Well, and also anyone who can afford to drive any car, but maybe especially an EV, their overall yeah. lifestyle there is so unsustainable because they're, you know, a wealthy Westerner most likely. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't really help not helping yeah you live in a suburb you probably live in a huge house uh that is not sustainably heated the car doesn't really help overall well and i'm not going to uh speak for him or uh, attempt to misrepresent him but uh a rowan atkinson for example um who i believe actually is trained as an electrical engineer before you know becoming incredibly funny and uh, world-renowned, um, has commented about how, uh, you know, he feels like we should probably, again, I'm not trying to mischaracterize it, but I think his view would be, hey, we need to rethink uh, this sort of fervor that we've had about uh, electric vehicle adoption um, versus, for example, what else can we burn in our internal combustion engines? Because we have obviously this legacy of, you know, <laughs> billions of vehicles that have been manufactured. Is it really a good idea just to mandate, uh, no, you're no longer ever allowed to use that vehicle again? Like, well, that's not exactly good use of resources, considering that, you know, you're always already in, um, uh, you know, positive net, territory in terms of um, net resource consumption if you can somehow reasonably use uh, currently existing hardware. Um, So I think he would uh, push for a a much um, more nuanced uh, yet reasonable mix of, okay, you know, electric vehicles have a role to play, but what can we do with all these internal combustion engines that are still around? Should we really just put them all (laughs) in, in the ground and ban their use, it doesn't seem very sensible to me. Uh, yeah, doesn't seem at all sensible or realistic or sustainable. Yeah. Another thing that I've been thinking about is the concept of rarity, scarcity in 
the music business. When we were growing up, when we were teenagers, popular music was my entire world. It would have been, and kind of still is, although not so much, really hard for me to be friends with somebody that whose musical tastes I didn't appreciate. So mm. that's different than somebody having the same musical tastes as me. So there would maybe be a group of people that were really, really into, you know, heavy metal or maybe bands that I could sort of enjoy like Guns N' Roses. Now that might not have been my cup of tea. Meet my Bakian. Um, but I respected that they liked that music because I saw the value in it for what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and I have been asking myself why music was so important to me that it was the core of my um, social compass it was the, i'm trying to find a nice metaphor here but mm -hmm. it was the um that's not a good one that's a mixed one um it was whatever makes balance as a gyroscope that's what music was for me it was directional for me um and completely informative as it is for m most teenagers i think but for people who are deeply into music there's something extra there and there was something very very exciting about getting your hands on that album that was hard to come by or you know if you lived where we lived and you didn't have access to the cool radio stations because they were in chicago and just a bit yep. too far out of range there would be like the one spot in the one street that you could kind of get the radio to tune in and then you could hear the the new song that wasn't maybe being played on the local radio stations i was gonna say a particular example of that is uh i want your sex by right? george the, michael yeah, yeah. And so you had to you, you drive to the uh, particular area where yeah. you knew you get good reception of this uh, cool radio and station. wait for the song to yeah. come on. Yeah, wait for the song to come. Which I think that's yeah. Was on or about every at five the minutes. record shop Ozarka. I mean, we've told these stories before, but yeah. getting you know the ten dollar and a, the ten dollar CD import CD that had like you know the single and then three mi remixes of it on it, and it, it was you know coming from the UK. You know, th th that that scenario doesn't exist anymore. And I think that there's something really lost with that. But then I also had to ask myself, why was there some why was this so important to me? Was there some ego tied up in it? Was there some snobbery tied up in it? I would I'm trying to find the humility to say yes, but mostly it was just because I was so excited about the other the unattainable because it represented a bigger world. Mm -hmm. I, I believe I'm remembering that correctly. Now that scarcity doesn't exist anymore. And I have some theories as to why other than the obvious where, you know, digital streaming has made everything accessible at all times. But what I wondered now, if the scarcity is in the music fanatic herself, Mm -hmm. If those are rarer than they used to be, and when you find one, then that's something special. That's definitely been my experience here. And I think it's because in the Netherlands, 
it's so much of a dance DJ culture that music, no matter what it is, is sort of in the background. It's a means to an end. We're going to go party or we're, you know, put the music on. It isn't about the music itself. It's about the music creating an atmosphere. Because I've met many people our age here who have never even heard of the music we grew up with, like Depeche Mode or Erasure, some of the basics that aren't even like, you know, deeply esoteric or alternative. Mm -hmm. There's a few people that I've met here. They're men who at least are music fanatics, but not of anything that's particularly obscure. Um, And I wonder if that's more the case now with the one or two generations coming up behind us than it was, you know, when we were growing up and of my adult friends who have children that are, you know, coming into their early twenties word on the street is these kids are listening to our music. So they're really into the Smiths. Now maybe that was kind of like us being really into Led Zeppelin when we were growing up or, or in that case you have to go farther back like Elvis. Yeah. So we're so old now that when when we were 18, the Smiths are to today's 18-year-olds what Elvis was when we were 18. That's how much time has gone by. That's how old we are. Yeah, and, and that stuff can be kind of cool because it's anachronistic. Doesn't that freak you out? Oh, oh those time periods. Oh, yeah, yeah, when you look at, uh, well, I mean, one of the examples that, um, sort of resonated with me is that I remember the point when synchronicity 1983 um, became older than Sergeant Pepper was when synchronicity came out. So many examples like that. So and those kind of uh, you know just it just kind of crystallized like wow a lot of time. But then you also say. I think the tendency then too is to say, okay, well, wait, actually, what was the state of music at, say, you know, Sgt. Pepper era or Synchronicity era or, you know, in, in the, uh, um, you know, early aughts or something when, when those, I think you can only see the transitions um, historically and not necessarily when they're happening. Um, but I think that, that, you know, we're always consciously aware of whether something is, kind of of the moment or whether it's consciously you know of a different era like I remember there was something strange about the Stray Cats <laughs> that they were it was there was pop music I mean that was on pop radio I was like why is that guy's hair like that and why is he playing those guitars like you know I knew that Elvis wasn't cool I mean I thought that Elvis wasn't cool but if I'd actually sort of done my homework like Robert Plant thinks that Elvis is cool. Uh, you know, so maybe Elvis is cool. But, you know, that that anachronistic stuff, that that's difficult to pull off now. And I must say that um, having gone through the 80s uh, and, and the 70s too, actually, when I see post-millennials or hear them talk about something, like when, what they think is 80s music often isn't. Uh, so, so I become kind of protective. It's like, first of all, they're they're just dabbling. Like you don't really understand that era and that music. But I, I guess I shouldn't necessarily shut that down. I should instead applaud the effort in the same way that you know I 
try and educate myself about like a bebop or something, but you know, I didn't really live through it. So can I ever truly have a complete understanding of it? The the music itself, yes, but as a cultural phenomenon, no, I I didn't experience it. So it's always just going to be secondhand. Um, So I guess I should just applaud them if they really are listening to the Smiths, whatever, just to listen to that music. And, you know, I shouldn't misrepresent. I wasn't into Smiths when I, I was growing up. I in particular like the, the Smiths now. Yeah. So, but I, I am still, I would appreciate if, you know, the, the youngsters are getting into what was once pop music, uh, but is certainly not now and bears no resemblance to contemporary music. So, you were for good sure a late them. bloomer when it came to no, there, listening to alternative music, but then you Im- immediately consumed everything and then within a very short period of time you knew more about the music i loved than i did well there, no there, there's no, there's never been a, a blooming um i uh yes i was i was detached from it um because i didn't experience it so when i did um i was able to you know maybe see things somewhat more objectively than you because for you it was tied up and you know, memories. And, um, and I think there is a big question there, but, you know, you mentioned the sort of Dutch attitude about, um, music almost as like ambient, literally ambient music. So it's just part of an overall phenomenon. It's just what's on at a party or it's what people are dancing to. And I think that that's entirely valid as well, but it's probably not, you know, what we should be striving for in terms of the highest sort of uh, artistic statement which is probably just an analysis and an appreciation of the music itself regardless of its you know context and um, social or cultural norms it looks like there's a new fashion trend now that i believe was started by the kardashians i'm guessing because i've seen kim kardashian wearing like a I don't know, a Def Leppard t-shirt or something. Mm-hmm. But every time I see somebody under the age of 30 mm-hmm. wearing the classic, iconic Nirvana t-shirt with the smiley face with the X's and the eyes, Oh, yeah. I'm deeply offended, especially if it's just, and I, I'm just going to say this, I think it's probably true, just some young, cute, blonde, blondie Dutch girl. Like, <sighs> you are appropriating my music and I doubt you can even name one nirvana song not even one not even the biggie i really doubt it and it's everywhere the biggie luckily dutch trends they do bloom like an algae and then they dissipate and die off just as quickly so i think i only have to look at this for maybe another year or so and then they'll all be well then they'll all be in the landfill because they're probably buying all of these things from fast fashion stores i don't know they're certainly not digging through vintage you know stores trying to find these t-shirts because nobody would ever give away their nirvana t-shirt if they bought one in their early right. 90s okay so they you had have a negative reaction to her because uh she's wearing the uh nirvana t-shirt but that's kind of you know i mean who hasn't heard of uh nirvana so well, i'll tell you something michael be... <laughs> rachel <laughs> yeah, this yeah. was this wasn't the first time that this happened to us yeah. my cousin rachel who's a singer um had n- never heard of nirvana and that's when i realized yeah because she was born the year that nevermind came out so but she had 
almost certainly heard Nirvana. So she doesn't have to be aware of it. Yeah, who knows? But the only place I was going with this was, um, would you, it sounds like you sort of immediately uh, disrespected that person who's uh, wearing the t-shirt. What if it had been a little nichier? is a bit soft. <laughs> Disdain. What if it had been a little nichier, like, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, Mud Honey or something? Well, it wouldn't have been because okay. they're, you know, they're selling these t-shirts somewhere and your choices are, you know, probably, um, you know, a Nirvana shirt or an Aerosmith shirt or right. something that looks vintage, but it's brand spanking new and was most likely made in Bang- Bangladesh, you know, a month ago. Right. Who knows? Well, it's, it's funny you mentioned the t-shirts too, because um, I certainly remember this in the 80s. Um there was merchandising associated, you know, so you could always, whatever, pay 40 bucks uh, for uh, a sweatshirt or something, <laughs> a, a cool, you know, uh, a muscle shirt or something. If you went to uh, a concert, uh, which obscene amount of money, of course, that they were charging for merchandising even then. But aside from distribution of concerts, um, I'm not sure if that sort of thing still exists. Uh, today like I remember the sort of you know cool record store um, that you go to and you know there were more like Iron Maiden t-shirts than there were Iron Maiden records so lots of people like wearing this stuff probably didn't even own the music but it was just kind of a cool t-shirt like I don't know who um, I don't know if they make Olivia Rodrigo t-shirts um, or Taylor Swift t-shirts i don't think i've ever seen somebody wearing a taylor swift t-shirt are, are well, you probably not... just not paying attention i'm sure if you looked you would find some 12 really? year old okay i mean i don't think i've Maybe ever so. seen somebody wearing a taylor swift t-shirt either but the reason for that is probably because the parents had to get a second mortgage out of their house if they were even quote unquote oh there's a quote unquote lucky enough to get the tickets and then they don't have any money for the $50 t-shirt left. Um, okay. So maybe uh, pop acts aren't merchandising the way they used to. Maybe they're I'm also sure just they not are. playing as many concerts. Uh, so if yeah. live music as a phenomenon well, There's is only going so away, many stadiums. So There are only so many stadiums. Yes. Let's change the subject to something more, more um, that makes me happy and not furious. There is a fashion designer named Jeff Garner. And we actually met Jeff during one of our, what I would call, glamour group trips. Should we mention names? I just, yes. Okay. He's a public figure. Our yes, friend. Yes, but not every, okay. Robert. Yeah, now you've thrown me off. Our friend, Robert Hicks, was a best-selling author uh, involved in so many things. We could talk about Robert another time. Anyway. Not my first anyway. Robert would organize these trips somewhere fun in the world for his birthday. And we would go on these trips. And on one of these trips, Jeff came along. Jeff was friends with Robert. I seriously doubt that Jeff remembers us. But um, this was the trip in Morocco. And Jeff is a fashion designer. And he only works in natural fabrics and natural dyes. And Jeff has is of the opinion. I think he would say this is this is fact, but I'm I'm gonna say 
of the opinion or have made made the conclusion that synthetic fibers are carcinogenic. This is his claim. But aside from all of that, I think his clothes are incredibly beautiful. And I've always hoped that someday there would be an occasion where I could wear one of his garments, which is a dream that'll never come true. But, and where was I going with this? I saw... He doesn't think, just do couture though, right? I think, yeah, no, I think he only does couture. Okay. okay. Uh, I saw him being interviewed on Russell Brand's show on Locals. And, oh, yeah. So it made me start to think about my own relationship with natural fibers uh, ADHD thing is a we're again I mentioned this before very tactically tactically sensitive uh, most of my shirts have a small hole in the back of them where the tag used to be because the tag was so unbearably itchy or scratchy that I had to tear it out right that very second from my shirt I'm exceptionally sensitive on my skin to anything that's itchy or rough. And uh, so a lot of my clothes are cashmere or pure cotton or uh, what's the name of that really soft natural fiber? It starts with a T. Tessel or tex, tes, tinsel? Tin, not tinsel. A fabric that starts with a T. It's, uh. it's really sustainable. Bamboo, hemp, anyway. But of course, there's plenty of clothes in my closet that's rayon, nylon. You know, everything has elastic in it now. And my perception of these clothes are kind of hippy-dippy, like, oh, the hemp shorts, but they're the fabric's too loose, or linen is only for summer. And I'm going to start reevaluating my thought there. And I wish that there were more Jeff Garners out in the world that were making incredibly beautiful clothes that were really fashionable, that he's changing what fashionable means. And, you know, I have a pair of, of linen, I have this little outfit, it's linen drawstring pants, because so much linen is drawstring, and I need to, yeah, you see where I'm going with this. It's like mom on the beach fashion um, with this lovely top that I bought in high school in 1987 at the limited and I still have that top and I still have those pants and they are in perfect condition perfect condition 45 years later um yeah that's not profitable for the fashion industry right um Some of my concerns, or quibbles, I guess I would say, the words like natural, that's those kind of things always bristle with me. Uh, it's, it's sort of like, you know, supernatural or unnatural. It's like, as far as I'm concerned, there's only natural. But I can understand as a, a, a broad term, if you're just saying, you know, whatever has um, uh, maybe traditional means of manufacturing, or if it's, you know, if it seems to come more from a lab than, than from the ground, uh, or, you know, there's such a, a degree of processing that it, you know, seems natural or seems unnatural or has some petroleum based products in it, then I, I guess that's more or less what we mean by the term. I have no idea if they're cancer causing agents. Uh, I will say that there were a lot of, you know, I'm sure what uh, Jeff would call 
you know, synthetics or unnatural fabrics, um, in the seventies. Um, and, uh, I don't know, it just, I'm a great believer in technology and, and human progress. So when we are capable of making something, I'm usually unless and until something bad happens with whatever that something is that we've made, I'm generally in favor of it. Uh, and I'm generally uh, not in favor of doing things the way, you know, people did a thousand years ago, unless there's a good reason for doing so. If we really are doing things now unsustainably, which of course, fast fashion, I would argue that, that that's unsustainable. And, you know, it is much more about I need to sell the same person uh, something, you know, six times a year as opposed to, you know, selling. It's it's the sell a, a guy, you know, a new car every couple of years or something as opposed to uh, having a, a long-term relationship with somebody, you know, consumer and uh, producer. But um, I don't know what... Uh, I guess if we're going to look at it purely in economic terms, maybe there's just not as much incentive for clothing manufacturers. Um, it, would they rather charge somebody, um, whatever numbers we want to use, uh, you know, 50 bucks uh, for three different articles of clothing that don't last very long, or would they rather charge them 50 bucks up front for one article of clothing? the last three times as long. Well, yes, um, of course, the latter would be preferred. I'm trying to That's find... what I don't understand. Isn't it better to book all that revenue up front and then just know, okay, well, I can't count on another purchase from that person uh, for, you know, X amount of time. Uh, I mean, there is, in a sense, still planned obsolescence in things that are relatively, you know, delicate, uh, such as fabrics. Um, so, you know, you know, people are always going to need to buy <laughs> socks and underwear and, and shoes like those <laughs> articles of clothing get used. Uh, you know, we burn through them in a way that we don't things like neckties. Um, so I don't know what, what, why don't they make something that's more expensive and just have us buy it less frequently. I think um, it used to be that way. I think that uh, you, know, you have to consider who's your actual customer. Is it the consumer or is it your shareholders? So I think what needs to happen is that if the growth of your company results in environmental degradation, you don't get to become a publicly traded company, for example. Um wow. Well, where you know who's responsible here? Again, if I've said this, yeah, a thousand. We're gonna pause for a second. Doggy doorbell's going off. All right, doggy doorbell. So I am on a WhatsApp group. Okay, wait. So so I just want to understand. So, um, so you're saying uh, any environmental harm, therefore, what company has to be dissolved? It becomes publicly owned what what is the what i'm saying and i've said this many many times just setting aside how one would define environmental harm if depending on the individual consumer's behavior to save the environment works it would have already worked now this may sound a little nanny state to people 
but human beings are very susceptible to marketing. Shopping has become a pastime and it is simply inefficient and unrealistic to try and change the purchasing behaviors of billions of people as long as it is still permissible to market to those people in order to change their pat you know purchasing behavior in favor of the manufacturer that's a ridiculous contradiction well i don't know oh you and i go back and forth about this kind of stuff you know just how, how much... can you look at every red bull can thrown on the ground and think anything differently well difference is that i do I'll say it's maybe a, a kind of act of faith um, because I don't know how so- something could be, you know, um, incontrovertibly proved, uh, something like this. But uh, I, I generally believe that, um, you know, consumer choice <clears throat> is more responsible for whatever situation we find ourselves in. So, I know that you just don't like the Austrian fella who made Red Bull. He died. Uh, <clears throat> I know, but you still <laughs> curse him. I was not sad. And, and what he's created. And I'm just saying, whatever uh, impact Red Bull has had, uh, I have to put more of it on the people who consume Red Bull rather than the people who produce Red Bull. Um, I, I just, it, it seems obvious to me that you have to blame. Blame is not the right word. You have to place responsibility uh, on those who elevate those companies to the position that they're in. Um, I'm not a big fan of Disney, for example, post-Walt, just in terms of the relatively low quality of their output. You don't have Walt, you don't have Don Bluth or whatever, it's probably just not going to be very good. But I don't blame Disney for all that horrible Marvel shit as much as I do the people who go to see that horrible Marvel shit all the time. And it is true that if you if you have the attitude of, well, I'm just I got to go to the movies, that's all there is at the movies. That's true. So there is a question there, I think, about genuine consumer choice. It, do we even have the option of seeing a good movie in the cinema? It wouldn't appear so. Uh, but, you know, the choice to not go to the cinema at all is also a choice. And if <laughs> it might be a moral imperative that we do that. Um, otherwise, I can't fault them for, you know, shitting out another horrible Marvel movie um, or what they call Star Wars movies now, which obviously are not Star Wars movies. Um, but if everybody keeps lapping it up, I, I don't blame the Friday the 13th franchise that there were, you know, I think there were actually 13 movies. Um, if the most recent one doesn't make money, they're not going to make them anymore. So just stop doing it. You have to place some of the responsibility on the people who are consuming this shit, whether it's Red Bull or the new Marvel movie. 
And I love you for this. I love that you have so much faith in humanity that you think that humans actually have a choice in this matter. They do have a choice. I don't have as much faith in humanity because I do think that what's happening now is that it's all about getting, I I think it's a a dopamine, by the way, is going to be a new word that I'm blocking. And I have to, this is going to be, I just realized it's going to be my new blocked word and I'm going to write it down, my banned word, but I do have to use it right now um it's all about that first opening weekend so i think that people now are being pulled into movies to get that rush to get the dopamine hit as opposed to being you know intellectually stimulated by a thought-provoking art house movie um and then it follows with all of the merchandising and the toys and michael i mean you certainly have do you, do you think that you had a choice as to whether or not to, to devote a significant portion of your life talking about paying attention to watching Star Wars movies and all of the toys? Yeah. And uh, Of course I had a choice. And it was mm. I was very happy uh, to make that choice. And I made that choice as long as it was a good choice. When the Star Wars franchise you know, with the the genuine Star Wars franchise, six films, uh, single outer is responsible for all of them. Everything else is a bunch of nonsense. Now, but he was the first one to introduce post movie merchandising into the world. And don't you think that there was something tapping into your brain that you didn't have control over, which is the excitement, the fantasy, the dopamine, and you would you would translate that into joy, fun you know devotion but i think there's something more sinister going on back there so there's another revenue stream attached to the star wars franchise of course in a way that there wasn't with films prior to that and yes if not for that then you know you wouldn't have the sort of marketing approach that you have uh for a lot of movies uh nowadays yes there but the (laughs) the real issue is whether the film itself resonated enough with people to want to get the merchandise. So, yes, Kenner, of course, by the time of you know Empire and Jedi, was probably, if they were in a position to do so, would say, well, um, do you think maybe you could have a few more outfits for Leia or a few more changes of clothes? Uh, for Han because you know because then we get to make another figure Um, so the marketing can end up influencing um, the art but for the most part especially with the original uh, with with the new hope because the merchandising and marketing franchise excuse me um, uh, phenomenon associated with the franchise hadn't yet happened we didn't really know that you know, Star Wars was going to change how films can be um, marketed and how there can be an additional revenue stream until after that happened. But it only happened because the movie was the greatest thing ever. If if that hadn't been the case, then there's no, uh, you know, excessive consumption coming on the back end of the movie. I think that those movies are too exciting for little kids. And I think that it, it hijacks our brain. And let me give you an example. One time, a friend of mine, 
um, had a, well, he, he had a baby and the baby was still an infant. And he said, Beth, you've got to watch this. And this was back before, this wasn't, again, like the early 90s. He had his child young, so right. no internet, no anything yep. like that. And he put on a VHS tape of Fantasia, and he put his five-month-old infant in front yep. of Fantasia, and he goes, watch my child's face. And the child, the infant's eyes got huge. Yep. He stopped blinking. He just stared, being overstimulated yep. by this the screen, this movie, he's like, I had, I, I had this out in the background and I saw my child's eyes like turning toward this. And we didn't know even back then what was happening. But as a little girl, I remember the feeling in my chest, that overwhelming excitement that I felt not by seeing the star Wars movie, I guess, what would that be? Michael, the first one, episode four. Don't, no, no, no. I, you don't get to talk about this right now. Otherwise, Michael's going to spend the whole time talking about um, Star Wars. But I you had... You probably saw it early enough that the, the print might I had not the have poster said episode four. Yes. With like the logo with Luke in the middle, you know, with the his... Famous Hildebrandt. Uh, thank you. Yes. With his yeah. lightsaber up in the sure, air. Sure. Well, there's a couple of those actually, okay, but no, I think no, I know no, the no, one you're talking about. Yes, no, go ahead. No. And I had the the watch, the little digi- mm-hmm. digital watch that had Star Wars logo on it. And it was like the, the little... Um, uh, the red, I guess it wasn't LED, but it was digital. Yeah. But and did, it showed, did you, have, you probably had to press it. You had it, to though, press a little button display. on the sure. side and it showed sure. the time and the date. I don't mm-hmm. think it would have been able to show anything else. Right. But that was very exciting that you could toggle yeah. between the two. Probably had a stopwatch too. Yeah. But. Maybe. And I had a little t shirt again with the like plastic applique on the, like iron mm-hmm. on on the front. Yeah. That I was very, very upset because my dad did the laundry and he ruined it and he faded it. Don't ever like. Don't ever let dads. What was on the t shirt? Was it, it just was the, the logo? same poster? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And Good the stuff. feeling yeah. that I felt when I looked at that image or or that logo was this feeling of, of excitement that was only coming from a, a dopamine hit right. in my little brain. Um, that's not, I don't think that movies are supposed to do that. That's what merchandising does. And I think it's very, yeah, I don't think that it's practical to ask millions and millions of human beings to overcome that feeling when all marketeers are doing are trying to like activate that feeling. And I'm going to say one last thing on the subject and then I want to change the, I want to change the topic topic if that's okay with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the Marvel movies are akin to the trend of people watching, I will say people, I'll say well people people watching other people play video games you're basically just passively watching something that looks like a video game when you know what the outcome's already going to be and you're saying that uh because of the amount of computer generated uh content in those I guess, new films or just okay. it's you know it's that same level of doughy passive excitement or stimulation. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to get back know, to fashion, for well, example. Okay, but, you get to say one last thing. On uh, this, but <laughs> this is not an opportunity for you to talk about Star Wars for the next I, I don't hours. need to. Everybody okay. knows uh, mm-hmm. about Star Wars. All right. Uh, no, I, well, I think we'll probably just uh, disagree to disagree about this. Mm-hmm. Let's All disagree right. to disagree. Perfect. Yeah. Fine. Uh, 
okay, so back to the fashion thing. So I'm on this WhatsApp group of um, some very high-profile, influential thought leaders, all women, um, that are internationally recognized. I don't know how I got on this group, but I'm grateful that I am. And one of them uh, is a former minister um, in a country that we're pretty familiar with. And there was a discussion going on in this group about how um, we're we're going to... you know, meet all of the increasing demands for energy over the next couple of decades with renewable energy, which is a loose conversation. And I said, I would love to have more conversations in the public realm about reducing energy consumption, because it seems like increased energy consumption is just this foregone conclusion. And somebody, this woman had thrown out um, a stat and she said, yes, overall, As an example, we need to work much more on the demand side of the equation. 10% of the world uses 40% of the resources. Not buying one pair of jeans is better than making five pairs of jeans at 20% cleaner. The quote-unquote elite, and I'm using that because she put this in quotes, Mm -hmm. consumption pattern is most prevalent um, in the GN, which means Global North, but as much present as elites worldwide and uh, rapidly spreading. And... um, Yes, this is something that we need to talk about more. I remember when my mother made her first trip to Europe. I did not go with her. Uh, It was in 1984-85. And the dollar at the time was super, super strong. And so she came back with all these luxury goods, like a Gucci purse for me and, um, you know, some beautiful items of clothing. And she said, Beth, in Europe, a woman might have one skirt or one pair of jeans, right. which was inconceivable to me. I felt so sorry for these women. But she said, yeah. but they know how to use it. They know how to dress. They all dress amazing, spectacularly well. And she was enchanted for the rest of her life. And then I would mm-hmm. become later. Um, I think, obviously, we really need to get back to that. I'm uncomfortable or, with phrases like, you know, we need to get back to that. Or but some, yes, I, I understand. Well, you just said it yourself, though. No, no, I... I I, for myself, yes, that makes sense. Um, but I have a hard time, you know, saying this is necessarily what people should do. But yes, that, that sort of mindset appeals uh, to me, certainly. Um, look, uh, well, it goes back to the thing we were talking about the, at the very beginning, the pleasure of scarcity, the pleasure yeah. for saving up, not putting something on your credit yeah. card. Uh, for that beautiful, beautiful item that fits well, that feels good, yep. that is versatile. People are m- missing out on the pleasure of of scarcity, rarity, refinement. Yes. I, I, again, I, I feel that way, but I understand that not everyone does. Look, America, um, post-war, you know, land of plenty... Uh, we really developed consumerism and we've been very, very effective at exporting. Consumerism was developed to distract us post-World War II from what the government... (laughs) (laughs) We're into Illuminati uh, stuff here. But uh, regardless of how it came about or whether it was a very top-down design, I think it is fair to say that consumerism has caught on <clears throat> and the U.S. has been very effective at exporting it. Again, I'm not talking in some sort of grand design. 
Uh, it's just that the rest of the world apparently wanted a taste of consumerism. So don't think Europeans anymore just have one skirt. Oh, they definitely <laughs> no. do not. Look at the Primark. They H&M right. on every corner. And this is where you're going to blame uh, Zara and uh, Primark for that. Yes, I am. And blame again. I shouldn't use that word necessarily. But Zara is not an American company. Neither is Primark. Them. Primark, I think, is Irish. Zara is Spanish. H&M uh, is yep. Nordic. Yep. Um, but it's the punters that are keeping that those places in business. And so we are, we, I'm saying, referring to consumers in general, we're the only entities that, that can empower these companies. It doesn't have to do with, you know, government regulation, blah, 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 let's, whatever. These people are polluting the environment. We're going to shut down the company. It's like, whatever. It's, if the public believes strongly enough that that company is bad, if it's you know too consumerist or if it's somehow damaging the world, then the burden I think has to be on the consumer to say, all right, this is not, yeah, you know, assuming that they are, you know, relatively affluent enough that they can make those choices. Again, this idea of kind of false choice, you know, uh, there are plenty of people <clears throat> in the U.S. that are uh, using the term loosely. Um, you know, uh, constrained to only consume in a rather unsustainable way. So maybe they live in a food desert, you know, they literally have to get groceries at like convenience stores, right. you know, so they're um, consuming junk food. It's a bad idea, but you know, they're not really in a position to have a genuine choice in a way that when a relatively affluent person um, says, you know, whatever. Well, yeah, I, I shop at Walmart. I get the best price. It's like, all right, well, you're really contributing to this problem because you don't need to shop at Walmart. You can make, you know, more responsible uh, choices and, you know, maybe more long-term sustainable choices. Well, I will tell you that when I was, you know, desperate for having to find a pair of jeans that fit me, I went into that Zara and when I saw on the label where they were manufactured, I did not buy yep. those jeans and again we're going to have Tammy Parrish on the podcast but this is one of the reasons why I really like working with a personal stylist because she also when she's choosing clothes for me takes into consideration my ethics so I as much as I possibly can buy all of my clothes secondhand from luxury resale shops like the next closet in the Netherlands mm -hmm. I can't think of an item of clothing that wasn't like socks that I haven't bought from the next closet. Right. Um, for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's really hard to find high-end designer clothing in the Netherlands in general that isn't just high street stuff that one is either like way out of my mm -hmm. price range, but also things that I just don't think are pretty. So you actually have more selection of a different range of different types of fashion in these secondhand designer shops um, online. Second of all, Tammy really knows my taste. And so she can see a jacket online that I might not look at, but she's going to know what it looks like in person. And she's going to know that it's going to look good on me or not. So there's things that she has selected for me online that I never would have considered that when I get them in person, they look amazing. Um, and I wear those clothes. And I also don't have to think about things. There's no stress um, or distraction or I'm a very busy woman. So when I do have to get dressed up for, you know, a public engagement, 
mm-hmm. all of the clothes in my closet are either picked out by Tammy or something that I know is going to fit because I'm like, I, I've sort of learned from her. I could just grab something. It looks great. I, I, I do like, uh, you know, mix and matching. I am sort of a granimals person. So um, I like pieces, the yep. jacket, the pants, the shirt, as opposed to, you know, a full outfitter. I like dresses too, but, you know, I've always been sort of a, a collections person. And then Tammy has picked out some, a few accessories for me. So it's like that, that I wear all the time, that bracelet or that one um, necklace mm-hmm. and the necklace is high quality. It's expensive. It's, you know, it was maybe uh, the necklace I have in mind, like two or 300 euros, but I wear it all the time. You know, and, uh, yeah. and um, I, I would encourage people who can do this to think about shopping in those terms. It's, um, it's pleasurable, it's personal, and it's not an, an afterthought, and it's not shopping as a way to pass the time or as entertainment. Right. Uh, yeah. Yep. No, Every I, time I, I, I see so. these young girls walking out of Primark or H&M with bags and bags under their hands, I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. For, for you know, the, the few teenagers that are out there on the streets protesting for, you know, Extinction Rebellion, I'm like, you you are targeting the you are barking up the wrong tree, people. You should not be protesting shell. Protest your peers. Get to them. I mean, isn't this what you were saying, Michael? You know, peer well, pressure your peers to change their consumerist behavior. Do you stand for anything when you walk out of those sto- shops with your arms filled with bags? Well, sure. You, you got to get, get your um <clears throat> wardrobe in place for when you're gonna, you know, sit down on a highway and uh, block the cars. Don't but be uh, cynical. no, I'm not being cynical. Look again, I don't. So I think that I am somewhat of a you know, unusual consumer. Uh, so I wouldn't expect you know companies to cater to my uh, considerations. Uh, and also, I wouldn't argue for other people to necessarily do things the, the way I do by any means I, I well nobody try does anything the to, way you do Michael you are an by... outlier to the extreme in well, every aspect of your life I, I, I don't know um, I do but I mean I can only and I again I think you're adorable for it but yeah. Michael always uses the extreme example in any situation to try and justify the norm well, and you have if, to look at the edge cases. You in don't order have to, to use no, it, no. the edge cases, Michael. You actually have to slice off no. the edge cases. In order to carefully define the rule, you have to know the meets and bounds. So what exactly are we talking about here? You, what are the you exceptions? You say the meets and bounds have to be considered. And no, normally they, they're sliced off. The extremes on either end are usually sliced off when thinking about a practical solution. You know this. I, but you love to go to the extremes because you are argumentative you, and cantankerous and contrarian and you love to be in that realm and the best way to understand a rule is to look at possible exceptions or you know at what point the rule doesn't make sense um but anyway this uh we need to I would this up try, yeah 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 I've, i think we i think we're done so the the lesson is just buy an iron maiden t-shirt and and you'll be good do you want to take us out with some tasty licks I don't have any tasty licks. All right. No tasty licks for our no od- audience licks. today. Jackie's not no, here. No, you don't like Matuni. Okay. Um, so the band word for today is <laughs> dopamine. This is the last Dopam- time you're going to hear that word spoken on this uh, podcast. A dopamine hit. Come on, Michael. Give me a dopamine hit, hit with your some tasty no, licks. 
I had no licks. Put the mic down by your guitar. No, we're done. Okay. Okay.